May the gift-giving love of God, his grace, may it dwell richly in your hearts, friends of Jesus. Amen. As I noted already, we've got a, a fairly long reading for today's gospel, and so rather than reading it at that time and then remarking on every part of it, uh, what we're going to do is I'll, have you ask, I'll ask you to open your bulletins at this point, open up to the gospel reading, and we're going to work through that piece by piece at a time, uh, follow along with me there. So our gospel reading picks up in verse 5 of John chapter 4. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This reading uh, jumps us forward a bit under a year in Jesus' life from last week's focus lesson. We heard then about Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness after his cousin John baptized him. Jesus came out of the wilderness and began to gather some of his early disciples, people like the brothers Peter and Andrew and another pair of brothers, James and John. And Jesus' early ministry in that year was fairly innocuous. Uh, he did some preaching, he did some teaching, but his first big exposition of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which we heard from a, about a month ago now, that was still a few months away from today's reading. During that early ministry, Jesus was in the south of Israel, and he began to butt heads with a group called the Pharisees. This group was most active and influential in Israel's south, around Jerusalem. And we talked about them again during our series last month in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They and Jesus had very divergent interpretations of not only God's law itself, but also the way, out, way to live out obedience to God's law. And these disagreements would ultimately come, culminate in Jesus' arrest, Jesus' execution, some two and a half years away. For the time being, though, as this conflict started to show itself, Jesus decided that he and his disciples would head north into their home territory of Galilee to avoid provoking a conflict too early. On their way north, they passed through Samaria, now, Jesus' time, during Jesus' time in Israel, you could divide the country sort of into three regions. The south was called Judea, that's where Jerusalem was. The north was Galilee, that's where places like Nazareth and Capernaum, where we hear Jesus spending a lot of time, those are up in the north in Galilee. In the middle, between those two, you've got a region called Samaria. Now, there's a lot of Bible history tied up in Samaria, which we heard about in our Old Testament reading. Once upon a time, that had been Jewish territory, part of Israel proper, but God had allowed his people, hundreds of years prior to Jesus, to be removed from those lands after generations of rebellion against him. And the conquerors had resettled that territory. So these Samaritans, the people who now lived in Samaria, thought of themselves as Jewish, as we'll see in the conversation that ensues. But most of the Jews in Jesus' time regarded the Samaritans as outsiders and unwelcome, and the Samaritans had some particular customs that didn't really help this perception. So the general status quo in Jesus' day was that Samaritans stayed in Samaria, that Jews stayed in Galilee or Judea, ne'er the twain shall meet. That's what shocks the woman here at the well. This Jewish 
stranger, a man, no less, speaking to her. But that's not all that's surprising to this woman. It's not the only reason she's reacting this way. There's a reason why this woman is out at the well at noon, the hottest hour of the day. There's a reason she's alone when women usually went to draw water in groups to help one another lift the buckets and keep company. And maybe you already know this story, but if you don't, we'll see why. So back in the reading, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Something we see throughout Jesus' ministry. He's not big on answering unhelpful questions. It's not going to be helpful for him to answer this question that the Samaritan woman is sort of asking, right? Indirectly, she's asking, what are you doing talking to me? He's not interested in rehashing the old grudges between Samaritans and Jews right now. Instead, Jesus redirects conversations. Throughout his ministry, what we see is Jesus taking conversations to the place they need to go. Keep watching him do that in this conversation. Uh, Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Did you catch the way that the woman tries to get the conversation back to this fight she wants to pick about Jews and Samaritans? Again, Jews didn't consider Samaritans Jewish, but this woman calls Jacob patriarch of the Jews, the man who would go on to be renamed Israel, the man who would give his name to the Jewish nation, she calls him her father. She wants to get Jesus angry. She wants to tick off this annoying Jewish stranger, get her water in peace, and head home. She wants a fight to shut down this conversation because she doesn't want to talk to a stranger. Let's reflect. What could someone say in a conversation that would tick you off, right? What would get right under your skin? What could Satan use to keep you from witnessing to someone? Again, let's watch how Jesus approaches this conversation. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus does not go after that red flag in this conversation, like a a dumb bull with his horns out, right? And too often, way too often, we do exactly that. Someone says exactly the thing that's going to take me off track, something that's tailored to give me tunnel vision, right? Make me start seeing red, keep me from the goal that we as Christians have in every interaction. We as Christians have a goal in every interaction? Yeah. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Colossians 4, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Every conversation we have is meant to share God's gifts to us with our conversation partner. That's what it means to have a conversation that is full of grace, a conversation that is full of God's gift-giving love. We want to know how to answer everyone. We want to know what gift to share with them in that moment, right? Sometimes the appropriate gift is information, experience. So we share that, but sometimes we simply share our attention, right? We let them talk rather than pushing on them our information, our experiences. Attention, that's a tougher gift to share sometimes. 
Jesus shares the best gift he can with her in this conversation. He shares himself with her. If you knew who it was speaking to you, drawing her in to learn more about him. Maybe as you hear Jesus' words there too, you're hearing something that causes you to think about baptism. If you're hearing echoes of baptism there in Jesus' words, you're right to hear those things. When we go back a chapter in John's Gospel here, John chapter 3, Jesus talks about baptism with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And at the end of chapter 3, just before this trip north began, what are Jesus and his disciples doing? Baptizing people alongside his cousin John. So as Jesus talks about living water here, take these words into your thoughts about your baptism. In your baptism, Jesus causes a spring of water to well up in you. Your baptismal identity in Jesus is what bubbles forth every day in your salt-seasoned, gracious conversations. Baptism is God's gift to you. It's a gift by which you're given something to share. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I'm not, to be totally honest, sure how to take what this woman says, and neither are other Bible scholars. We can either hear her being sarcastic, show me then, or we can hear sincere interest. Right? Perhaps that's kind of how she turns to him. Like, what? what do you have to offer? Either way, Jesus does that thing again. Right? He takes the conversation where he wants it to go. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Whether the woman was being sarcastic in her reply to Jesus or not really doesn't matter. Right now she's shutting down. Read her reply again. I have no husband. See how curt, how how abrupt she's being? She doesn't really have to say that. She could go and get the man she's living with. How would this random Jewish stranger know whether or not she's married to him? They didn't wear rings back then. Let's see. She deflects instead. She doesn't want to talk about this. She doesn't want this stranger to know how messy her life is. Turns out that he's not a stranger. He already knows her, and he lets her know that he knows her in a way that is frank, but not cruel, right? He just says it. There's no vindictiveness. There's no whip crack in the words of Jesus here. He just names her sin. If anything, maybe you agree with me, we almost hear a chuckle here at the end, right? You are quite right. It's not because Jesus is amused by sin. But is it so hard to imagine that he's often amused by our attempts to conceal sin? Why do we try and conceal sin? God knows. And if he knows, who cares who else knows? Their knowledge will not matter. I gave today's message the title, Jesus Doesn't Talk to Strangers. I want to make sure we explain that quickly. This woman didn't want to talk to a stranger. Often, neither do we. We certainly wouldn't want to talk about our sin, our failures, our faults, and our troubles with strangers. Only losers in AA do that, we might think to ourselves. What a shame. To Jesus, we are not strangers. This woman was not a stranger, you are not a stranger. He knows you. He knows your sin. He knows you. He doesn't talk to strangers because no one is a stranger to him. And it's in our knowing that God knows our sin, that we can do exactly what we did at the beginning of the service. We can confess at the beginning of every worship service, I have offended the holy God by my life. 
If you grew up as a Lutheran, right, with that form of confession and absolution at the beginning of worship, you might never have considered how profoundly weird it is to outsiders that we begin worship in that way with such words. That's a biblical way to worship. The Apostle Paul says this in his first letter to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Words of worship, beginning with the confession. Because God knows, because God knows your sin, it's okay that others know. God knows, so let the mask down. Move past your sinful nature's discomfort with being disrobed and see that you are not defined by the sin you confess, but by the washing you have received. Find identity, not in hiding your sin, nor in your sin itself. Find your identity in your having been washed clean by Jesus. As our New Testament reading said it, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Back into the gospel reading at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. One last chance to change, one last attempt here, right, to, to change the topic. And you know what? This one should have been the one that got Jesus going. Because there is a right answer to this. God had ordered that he be worshipped in only one place, at the temple, in Jerusalem. It was wrong that the Samaritans worshipped God where they did, in Samaria, at a place called Mount Gerizim. And Jesus would have been correct to admonish her, and then the conversation would have ended. Again, we can fall into exactly this pitfall in a spiritual conversation. We can take a hard stand conversationally on what our culture might consider hot-button politics, something where we have clear biblical principles to approach those issues. And we could, if we so chose, state firmly and flatly what the Bible teaches. We would be right. The conversation would end. Jesus has an opportunity here to clearly state what is right under the law of God. But he has a different goal here, so he stays on course. And what Jesus says next is so rich, that breaking all of it down will be a sermon in itself. So I just want us to focus, before we get into those words, on a couple of key ideas. Right, so again, all throughout this counter, we see this discomfort because this woman is being called out on her sin, addressed, right? All of this with a stranger. It's uncomfortable. The woman comes to the well as a social outcast. She's uncomfortable in polite society because of her sin. Jesus' presence makes her more uncomfortable. Right? She didn't want to see anyone in the first place, and now there's just this Jewish stranger man talking to her. And then he goes and names her sin, and we're all made uncomfortable. But keep that discomfort dynamic in mind as we read Jesus' reply at verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. 
This woman is lost. She's lost in her personal life. She's lost in her spiritual life. She has no idea how to live life, and she doesn't know what she needs to know about God. Guess what? She and Nicodemus, whom Jesus speaks with in the chapter before this, they're the same. Nicodemus, the prestigious, respected Pharisee, and this fornicating, multiple divorcee, they're the same. Neither of them knows the God that they think they worship. So Jesus promises truth to her. Why do you think this woman's last five relationships ended? Why is she not really committing to the man she's with now? You think maybe she might have some trust issues? You think maybe she's been lied to, or hurt, or misled? Do you think some part of her discomfort stems from a profound loss regarding her identity and her place in the world? Jesus promises truth. Jesus promises that what she has worshipped without understanding, she will come to know. Jesus comforts her. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is what she's always wanted. right? Truth, explanation, clarity, commitment. Is the same thing true for you? right? Is there some particular way that the gospel is communicated that resonates with you, that hits you right in the heart? For her, it's the picture of truth. That Messiah is going to come, is going to explain everything. This woman who has been hurt in so many relationships wants someone to be truthful, straightforward with her. And she knows that when Messiah comes, he's going to explain everything. This is her fervent hope. Truth isn't the only picture that God uses to describe what his Messiah does, what his love, his salvation is like. I love the wedding picture that he uses, for example, in Scripture, when God depicts what he's done for you, for me, in terms of a marriage, a relationship being brought together, something that's created through love, and something that's going to be greater than the sum of its parts. Related picture, maybe it's the one that really clicks for you, family. When God speaks of us as his children, one another as brothers and sisters, him our father, His love for us, our love for one another, based not on what we do, but on who we are in him. And maybe that picture is one you love to dwell on. Maybe it's the picture that's given through baptism, as we've talked about it here. The washing away of your sin, the thought of standing pure and clean before God, clean as the, the freshly fallen snow we got last week. And so this Samaritan woman, she doesn't know her Bible really well. She doesn't know everything about the God she worships, but she knows that a promised Savior is coming who will tell the truth. And it's that promise from God's word that has stuck to her heart through five marriages, through social rejection, through a hard life in a hard place. She clung to the hope that someone, someday, was actually going to tell her the truth. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. How can you even react? When your most heartfelt desires actually realized is standing in front of you, smiling at you. Here's what she does. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. What a crazy thing she's ready to tell everyone. This guy knows what I did. So do we, honey. We all know you. 
He loves me. This stranger knows me. He loves me. This stranger is my Savior, God. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Try something this week. Think about your own sin. Think about the things that you hide, the things that make you uncomfortable in front of other people and in front of God himself. Remember that he knows already. Then put yourself in these crowds sitting at Jesus' feet for two days. Come to the understanding to which they came. God has come to earth not to take from you, not to demand, but to recreate, to wash, to give, to save. All of this came out of one profoundly uncomfortable interaction with a stranger, right? Out of sin being exposed, out of a conversation for the potential, with that, that had the potential for an argument, right? kind of an unsafe interaction. Jesus is a God of uncomfortable grace. He doesn't give us the gifts that we think we want. He doesn't avoid the conversations we want avoided. He speaks to our needs. He gives us the gifts that fulfill them. And we will only ever share his name by seeing that he has moved us past discomfort and hiding. Seeing that he knows our sin. He loves us. He knows all sin. And he came to save you. The final verse. After the two days he left for Galilee, our uncomfortably gracious God is on the move. Let's walk with him. Amen.